it might help to start to think about, am I doing something that's activating the other person's hostility towards me? Well, one thing I'm very impressed about with a lot of my clients is that they're able to put their ego aside and just say, hey, what can I do better? Help me get through this. And that would be like the number one, you know, sort of advice I would give for anybody who's pretty much dealing with any problem is, but certainly a parenting issue is to acknowledge parenting is really hard, especially parenting in a conflicted marital or conflicted divorce situation. And there is help out there. We're in a mini series on the hard but important topic of parental alienation. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Chris Polad, Dio a pediatrician with special interest in divorce, trauma, resilience, and a Bible nerd. I created Little Pieces Club to help build resilience as families navigate separation. I'm happy to announce two new books. For people getting ready for marriage, especially young adults from divorce, we have Preparing for Marriage with Science and Scripture. And for couples in trouble, we have Marriage Rescue with Science and Scripture. Both are life-restoring, relationship-building, 40-day devotional meditations rooted in Little Pieces Club knowledge base. They are gentle, no-judgment zones. Just search for me on Amazon. That's Chris Polod, P-O-H-L-O-D, and you will find them. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Amy Baker, who is a nationally recognized expert in parental alienation and parent-child relationships, especially children of divorce and emotional abuse of children. She has a PhD in developmental psychology from Teachers College of Columbia University, and she's the author or co-author of 10 books and over 120 academic articles on topics related to children's well-being. We will have links to her works and her website in the show notes. I certainly hope you enjoy the conversation that we had. I especially enjoy the way that Dr. Baker thinks as she applies all of her insights gained over the last few decades. As I was listening to her speak, the scripture, Matthew chapter seven, verse three and four came up. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And I just really appreciated her focusing the attention on that particular topic when we're talking about parental alienation. Because really in the steps that a parent needs to go through, a lot of introspection needs to happen first to identify any areas that truly have turned the parent against you. And then we can focus on moving forward with the behaviors that help reunify the child to the parent. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. All right, well, uh, Dr. Amy Baker, it's an honor. Uh, to welcome you to the Little Pieces po- Club podcast. So I just appreciate you spending time with us and the audience today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure if I really um, fleshed this out for you, but this is the third in a series of parental alienation. I spoke with uh, Dr. Ellen Blatke and Ashish uh, Joshi. Uh, so we talked about kind of the assessment piece and the legal piece. And so I was hoping to focus on mitigation today. So I was just going to kind of start our conversation with kind of a first aid question and just say a parent realizes that there is this thing called parental alienation. What comes next? What kind of team do they need to think about? And maybe the top three most important initial steps that they can take. Um, sure. So I will say that I think it's a real light bulb moment for many people who are going through the rejection of their children and the kind of confusion and disorientation when the alienation is beginning. And I think often people sort of Google like, my kids say they hate me, or why won't my kids like me anymore, whatever. I'm not sure the exact search term, but then they land on something around parental alienation. And I think it really um, does help people to know that it's a real thing. They're not crazy. Other people are going through it. There is a name for it. There is knowledge about it. There are people who um, are experts in it. So I do think that that just sort of knowing that it's a thing can be very, very helpful for people. I will also say that, of course, 
uh, nobody wants to think that they're actually to blame for when their kids are rejecting them. But we as the professionals have to bear in mind that not every case of a child rejecting a parent is in fact alienation. And so the first thing I would say somebody should do once they start reading about alienation and dealing with the fact that their kids are changing, maybe turning against them, maybe being more hostile, suspicious, withholding, et cetera, um, to the first thing is to think, am I contributing to this? Am I causing my children to be disaffected from me? And that can be a very painful, awkward, uncomfortable process to go through, but I think it is an essential place to start. Likewise, thinking about your relationship with the other parent, rather than assuming they're an evil alienator, they're a this, they're a that, they're gaslighting, love bombing, gatekeeping, you know, a malignant narcissist, et cetera, which could be true, but rather than starting with that assumption that that person is out to get you, it might help to start to think about, am I doing something that's activating the other person's hostility towards me? You always want to start by looking at yourself. For one thing, you know, you're the person you have any control over changing. So even though it would might it might be unpleasant to think, wow, I've been doing things that are triggering my, you know, the other parent to behave in a certain way towards me. If in fact you are causing or contributing and you can control yourself or change your behavior, you might resolve the problem. So even though that might be unpleasant, embarrassing, humiliating, whatever, to think that you're actually underlying this problem, in a way it would be best because then you could take the lead in solving it. Um, but let's assume that you've done that. You've, you know, done some soul searching. You've, um, and I think in one of my books, Co-Parenting with the Toxic X, there's even some checklists and some things to sort of do like a self-assessment and certainly checking in with the other parent, gee, am I doing something that's really hurting or bothering you? So we have some guidelines in that book for how to do that. But let's say that you've done that and you're pretty clear um, that this is primarily coming from the other parent. The first thing I would say is to start documenting what's going on. And you know the way that we think about alienation is that there are 17 primary parental alienation strategies. Those are the behaviors that the other parent can engage in that can turn a child against you. And there are eight behaviors that alienated kids exhibit that indicate that they are in fact being turned against you. And so the, the after you do your soul searching and checking with yourself, once you think, gee, this really is a problem that's being instigated by the other person, the next thing I would say is to try to document what's going on, keeping a sort of a running record of each of the alienation behaviors that the, you think the other parent is engaging in and being very clear about what's the source of your information. For example, I have plenty of clients who say to me, Amy, my ex is bad mouthing me to the kids, which is one of the 17 primary parental alienation strategies. And there are times when I will say, how do you know? And that's not just a question that I want to know the answer to, but I'm pretty sure that other people, whether it's a guardian or uh, you know, guardian ad litem or reunification therapist or custody evaluator, at some point, the person's going to have to explain why they think they, they're so certain that the other parent is doing this. And I have actually had people say to me, well, what else could it be? My kids are mad at me all the time. So that's a faulty logic. You can't start with the outcome and then assume you know the cause. So your kids could be hostily rejecting you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the other parent is causing it. So if you want to start documenting, you have to be actually looking at the behavior of the other parent. Or, you know, do you have a screenshot of the text message? Do you have the person saying in writing to you, I'm going to tell the kids you never loved them? Do you have an audio recording of that, et cetera? So you have to think about compiling your evidence for a skeptic, not a true believer, because a true believer is going to believe everything you say. You want your evidence to be good enough to convince a skeptic. 
So I'm going to pause there and say those are sort of the main things that I think people need to do when they're just beginning to um, think about this problem. For the last thing that you mentioned, what I think a lot of parents kind of are up against is sometimes the alienator, uh, the alienating parent is sort of doing this verbally when they don't have access, like when the alienated parent doesn't have access to the children. And so how do do the, the kids sort of imply that the parents are, are saying these things? How in those circumstances do you get a sense of what the other parent is doing? Have, has there been anything in your coaching that sort of helped for that particular aspect of, of the behaviors? That's a great question. So just to remind everybody, there's 17 primary parental alienation strategies. Bad mouthing is just one. So it might be that all the quote bad mouthing is happening in a way that's not documented. But sometimes kids slip up and say, daddy told me or mom, you know, I'm going to flip the genders because we now know definitively that both parents can be alienators, mothers or fathers. So a child might say, daddy told me that. And although that might not be, um, you know, that convincing to a guardian ad litem, if you're willing to go on the stand, that the judge might take that as, you know, direct knowledge that somebody is telling you. So there's different kinds of evidence for different purposes, but some of these 17 primary parental alienation strategies don't require you to know what the other parent is saying behind closed doors, because that is hard to know. Um, for example, withholding information. Now you might think, how do I prove a negative? But here's, a, here's an example. Let's say the other parent takes the child to the doctor's appointment and doesn't tell you, and they're supposed to. So you would send an email saying, hey, I understand you took the children to the doc, you know, to the dentist or doctor without telling me, you know, please provide me with an update. Or, hey, I understand you have a new orthodontist for the kids. The kids mentioned they're going to a new orthodontist. Please provide me with that information. You wait a week, you don't hear back. You send another email. Hey, it's been a week, I haven't heard back. Now you have a paper trail demonstrating that they're withholding information from you. So you have to go through each of the 17 primary parental alienation strategies and figure out, are, you know, first of all, do you believe it's happening? Yes or no. And if you believe it's happening, do you have any direct evidence of it? Oh, that's perfect. So, yeah, good. Yeah, thank you. And so I want to shift gears a little bit, just so parents can kind of get into the minds of their kids a little. What is out there on how alienation and alienation strategies are impacting the attachment of the children? And that would include in terms of us our discussion, say gender. In other words, as they grow up, how does that influence their attachment to each of the genders. So I don't think there's any research on that gender issue. So I'm going to talk more broadly about right. attachment. So I actually came to attachment theory way before I came to parental alienation. So I actually did my dissertation and I was fully steeped in the attachment literature back, back in the day. I got my mm -hmm. PhD in 1989. So we're talking about mid 80s. So when I sort of stumbled on alienation and started doing research on it, um, because it has to do so much with the parent-child relationship, I, of course, brought my attachment perspective to it. So this is something I've been thinking about for a very, very long time. And um, the way that I think about it is that the essence of a secure attachment is when the child experiences the parent as safe, loving, and available. And what happens with parental alienation is that the alienating parent, intentionally or otherwise, they do not have to be doing this purposefully, intentionally, maliciously to be doing it. Um, so the alienating parent fosters in the child the distortion, the false belief that the targeted parent is unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. That's what alienation is. It's disrupting the attachment relationship between the child and the parent. And that can happen. Fathers can alienate 
can alienate sons from mothers. They can alienate daughters from mothers. Mothers can alienate sons from fathers and daughters from fathers. There's no data, and I haven't observed any patterns in my 10 years of coaching. There's no data that says a father is more or less likely to turn a boy or a girl against the mother, or a mother is more or less likely to turn a boy or a girl against the father. In my experience, when alienators are effective, they use whatever tools they have at their disposal to manipulate the children. So an alienating father of a daughter might incite conflict between the mother and the daughter um, differently than an alienating father might incite conflict between a son and his mother. So the alienating dad, for example, might say to a son, oh, us boys stick together. Boys need to be with their fathers. But I've seen plenty of alienating dads just use a different tact when the when the kids are, you know, if the child is a daughter. So I don't, I think the what they say might be different, but the fact that any gender parent can do it to any gender child is a given. And I've seen plenty of same gendered families where the parents are both moms and one mom can turn the kids either gender against the other mom. So I I think that alienation does disrupt the identity process because children do identify with their parents. Um, they, in an ideal world, as children progress into the teenage years, they're looking at the values and characteristics and strengths and weaknesses of each parent and deciding who they want to be as a person who is a combination of both of those parents. And that process does get disrupted if a child is being led to believe that one parent is all bad um, because whatever way in which they're similar to that parent who they're supposed to think is all bad, if they're similar to that parent in personality or you know physical appearance, they then have to, in a sense, hate a part of themselves. But again, that happens whether you're a daughter or son being alienated from a mother or a father. Understood. And how then does that sort of play forward into teen years and young adult years? The, the just the the identity formation process connected to the attachment themes that we were just talking about. Well, there used to be um, this idea in identity development theory that teenagers went through this process of sort of crisis and then resolution. And I think that does you know, this is not something I haven't kept up with this particular theoretical orientation in a while, but it's been around for decades. And I don't think it's changed that much since the last time I delved into it. So there's supposed to be this sort of identity crisis, and then process of really sort of delving into who you are as a person and then coming out of it, some combination of the best of both of your parents. And alienation disrupts that because the kids really aren't allowed to feel good about the aspects of, you know, any aspect of the parent that they're, you know, being targeted to hate. And so they're cut off from a part of themselves. And so the word that the identity theorists use is that process is foreclosed rather than the kid going through the whole who am I, what do I believe process, which is a really important process, right? We don't want people to just leap past that, but that's sort of what alienated kids are being coerced to do. And so when they come out of you know the teenage years and they go off to college, a lot of them seem to be cut off from themselves, not just from a parent, they're not as fully developed because they haven't allowed themselves to say, question certain things that the alienating parent is doing. They're supposed to lockstep, follow that parent, be like that parent, worship that parent. And they're supposed to automatically, absolutely cut off from and look down on any qualities of the other parent. And so they're not really being authentic to themselves. They're not, and that's sort of the whole problem with alienation is the kids aren't authentic in any sense. They're not 
relating to the favored parent in an authentic way because they're so subservient to that parent and they're not relating authentically to the targeted parent because they're not allowed to love and appreciate that parent. And all of those limits get put into their identity. Now, that doesn't mean that these kids are doomed. I just want to be clear. I have worked with lots and lots of people who have reconnected with their kids um, at, you know, at whatever point, either through an intensive intervention or just over time. And yes, these kids struggle. And I wrote all about that in my book, Adult Children of Parental Alienation Syndrome. They felt that this was a terrible thing that happened to them. But with therapy and understanding, and there's more and more out there to help these kids understand what happened to them, they can be okay. So it's a terrible thing. And yet I don't want anybody to think that their kids are doomed because they've gone through this. Yeah. And how, th this was a little unclear when I was uh, speaking with Dr. Blatke. Um, do we have a, a sense of like the, the numbers of kids that are able to pull out and reconnect versus those that can't? And then kind of long-term mental health consequences, I'm assuming, you know, when, you know, I've, I've read depression, anxiety, but other things as well. So how many kids do we have a sense can get better? And then what mental health challenges do they face as they're going through the process? Or if they're stuck and don't even go through the process, what is, what do things look like? Yes. So there's no data on this and that's for a good reason. Nobody is going to fund a study or support a study that says, let's follow 10,000 kids, whatever it is, and then a certain, let's say half of them, their parents get divorced. Okay, so now we have a smaller sample. And then a certain percentage of them, the kids become alienated, but we're not going to provide any treatment. We're just going to follow them and watch and see how many get better all on their own. That is not a kind of research study that would ever be allowed to be conducted. So, you know, just like we don't have a study that says, you know, let's follow kids who are being beaten by their parents, but not intervene and see how they do. Um, there are very strict at this point, and for good reason, guidelines about what kind of research um, is permissible. So most of, you know, if you Google like the top 10 psychological research studies, you know, you'd find out about the Milgram study, and you know maybe Harry Harlow's work with primates and the Stanford uh, Prison Project. I'm sure there are others, but those are sort of the three that pop into my head right away. You know these studies would never be allowed to be done now because there are protections. It's called human subjects uh, research protections. So we have to sort of get over the idea that that you know that we're going to have that kind of data. What we do have data on is the percentage of kids who go to one of two uh, parental alienation immersion treatments, and you can't get into those treatments without a court and experts saying that parental alienation is the cause of the child's rejection of the targeted parent. Uh, those programs, those two programs that do have data on them show 90 plus percent success rate. So that we know. Now, there could be more data, absolutely, looking at maybe following the kids years later, et cetera. There's always more research we could do, but we're never going to have a study that tells us what percentage of kids who become alienated um, as kids figure it out as they get older. I also personally think we don't need that data. We have data that shows how damaging alienation is for kids. Um, retrospectively, which is uh, how a lot of the child abuse literature has been conducted. Much of it is retrospective because we're not going to follow kids being beaten or molested and then not intervene and see how they do. So there's plenty of research. I did much of it, but I think there's other people doing it as well, where adults, even college, so sort of young adults, report on their exposure to parental alienation strategies, and then report on their current functioning, depression, anxiety, ability to trust other people, et cetera. We have like a number of measures, general symptomatology 
um, ability to launch, you know, life skills, things that really matter. So we have plenty of data that says that kids who report that their parents did these things also report not doing well in their current life. And I think that's enough for us to know that this is not a good thing to do. And there's nobody arguing, or I shouldn't say nobody, but most people at this point, I think, recognize that this is a problem, um, that it's not good for kids to be manipulated to be cut off from a parent who doesn't deserve to be rejected and who they would benefit from having a relationship with. Yeah. And to that point, what would you see helping this uh, at a at a maybe society or cultural level in the next three to five years? In other words, would comprehensive parental alienation, you know, training at the time of divorce be a good idea uh, to implement? And or, you know, what other types of mitigation strategies would be available to um, to help in kind of a public health uh, almost uh, approach? So, you know, I think that's a great question. And the first thing that comes to my head is what you said, which is that if every parent who was getting separated or divorced um, learned, I don't care if they use the phrase parental alienation, but they learned about the 17 behaviors that they should not be engaging in. And I would love to see if each parent had to sign um, a pledge. You know, I will not say bad things about the other parent. I will not ask the children to keep secrets from the other parent. I will not refer to anybody else's mother or father. I will not withhold information from the other parent, et cetera. And if both parents had to sign it and each parent had to put that on the refrigerator for the children to see, then perhaps when a parent was doing it, the kids would have some, I mean, obviously this wouldn't be appropriate for like infants or toddlers, but we're talking about kids who can read. You know, if they saw, gee, mom's asking me to keep secrets from dad, but she signed a pledge right here on the refrigerator that says she's not going to do that. Maybe that would help the kids resist. I also think that there are, um, I'm not going to say inoculation because that might be too strong a word, but there are ways to build up kids' resiliency to parental manipulation. That would be great if we could get that into the hands of kids. You know, I don't mean to overplug my own books, but I have this book called Getting Through My Parents' Divorce, and it teaches kids how to think for themselves, how to consider their options how to stay out of their parents' conflict so they can love and be loved by both parents. And it would be great if those skills could be taught to kids. And I actually believe they're transferable to helping kids resist being bullied and peer pressure and you know all sorts of other things. There's lots of ways that people can be manipulated to think something is true that's not or to make a choice that's not in their best interest. So those are some ideas. You know, we have a lot of information, um, but they're not, that information isn't always getting into the hands of the right people, including all the way up to the judges who have so much discretion to hold people accountable or let them off the hook. And I mean, I've certainly seen that. I was an expert witness and I did it for 10 years and I would, each judge was just, you know, one might be playing solitaire on his lap, you know, on his uh, desktop, you know, while I'm testifying, trying to educate him about alienation and another's hanging on every word, you know. So I would love to find some way to help the judges be more aware of this and l a little less lenient once it's been established that a parent is engaging in these behaviors. How would you envision using a small group setting to, to teach those skills for the kids? So I actually, with my um, colleague, Catherine Andre, we actually had a school-based curriculum and it was being implemented in various schools around the country, but we sort of let it go um, just because neither of us had the time to really cultivate, you know, evaluate, oversee, um, support all of these schools and we ended up sort of just taking it off the market 
um, and reworking it into a workbook for kids, um, which is that getting through my parents' divorce. But it's the same idea. So that was called I Don't Want to Choose. And it was for uh, middle school kids. And it was a group-based curriculum where you know, a, a guidance counselor or a teacher would meet with a group of kids once a week for lunch. You know, they'd have a brown bag lunch and they would do an activity. And so I have given some thought and there are people who wanted that. What I will say, one of the things that we found is there was not a lot of consistency one week to the next as to who was going to show up. And so that wasn't, you know, the some optional program for kids who have lots of competing interests and you know I want to play on you know in the recess in the playground for a lot you know instead of or I want to hang out with my friends at the lunch table this week like every week it was sort of a slightly different configuration of kids and that was really hard for the people running the group because you couldn't really build one session to the next so even though I have ideas about the content and how somebody could work with kids I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it through the schools because, um, and maybe that maybe that particular issue would be true, whether it's through a school or a community center. Um, and that's also, by the way, true of parent groups. You know, a lot of parenting programs are group-based, but you've got different people dropping in and out each week, and it's very hard to have a sense of cohesion or consistency. So I didn't solve that problem. You know, that's like, something I sort of gave up on. And I ended up thinking it made more sense to create a book that a guidance counselor, for example, mm -hmm. or a therapist could work on with a kid one-on-one -on -one so that you, you lose the, hey, I'm not alone. Other kids are dealing with this too, which I think is really important for kids to kind of normalize the experience. But you have a lot more control over the delivery of the content and the meaning each individual child is making of the content because you're just doing it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Yeah, that's fantastic. One more quick question on the kind of those that serve the kids in this realm is how, what advice do you have to navigate um, kind of mandated reporter requirements? Because this has been something I've been sort of wrestling with because if you look at the definition of abuse, um, in terms of at least uh, severe alienation, um, that is uh, termed emotional abuse. But at the same time, I, I get there's a sense that um, some of the reporting uh, or, uh, institutions, DHS uh, folks, they're really not quite prepared to address parental alienation as abuse. Um, so it kind of puts a mandated reporter situation into a little bit of a catch-22. Um, and so how have you navigated that? Or what what types of advice would you have for people working with children that uh, may be under those mandated reporter requirements? I think that's probably a dead end. Um, so the first thing to say is every state has their own definition of child abuse. And you can find out your state's definition by going to, um, I think it's called the Child Welfare Information Gateway. And on that gateway, you can sort of just navigate um, and find where it says definitions of child abuse, and then you can plug in your state. And most states do mention something related to emotional abuse but the vast majority refer to it as mental injury or measure it as a negative outcome the child has experienced. So you would have to demonstrate that there's already been harm to the child and link it to a particular parental behavior. So it's a very tall order um, and I, I actually, I understand that's frustrating for targeted parents, but the truth is that the, the, the federal, state, local child protection system is really designed to protect children from imminent harm. You know, a parent is beating a child, molesting a child, not feeding a child, et cetera. Um, and it's not really designed to address 
subtle parenting behaviors that result in long-term damage to children. That's just not the role of the child protection system. You can argue that maybe it should be, but it is not currently. And so mandated reporter training, which I've actually participated in every state that has a state level mandated reporter training, which is I think 44 of the states, I have actually participated in them. I've, so I'm pretty familiar with mandated reporter training. And the focus is, as I said, on protecting children from imminent harm, which is much more easy to uh, detect if there's physical abuse, because the definition of physical abuse really comes down to tissue damage. So a parent could hit a child and it wouldn't be physical abuse unless it caused tissue damage, a burn, a scrape, um, et cetera. Um, or sexual abuse, which we know is harmful and there's very specific behaviors and then physical neglect, failing to provide food, clothing, and shelter, again, all relating to imminent danger to the child. So the system isn't really designed for a problem like parental alienation. So the final thing I would say is that the if you look at the state, uh, state by state, you can look at the percentage of indicated cases. That's where there was an investigation and the system determined, yes, this is a problem. It's probably around 5% of all cases are categorized as just emotional abuse. It's very hard to get mandated reporters to call it in. It's very hard to get it screened in once it's been called in. The screener immediately says, this should be investigated or this shouldn't. And then even if it were investigated, it's hard to get it indicated. So it seems to me that if the only kind of bad thing you think the other parent is doing is emotional abuse through parental alienation, thinking that the child protection system is going to you know, be the way to protect your kids is probably not the best way to go. It probably makes more sense to go through the family court system where you can argue it's not in the child's best interest, which is a different legal standard to have a relationship with the other parent or for that child to have that much time. Like, let's say you want the other parent to have supervised visitation because you think they're just, you know, out of control alienating. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that through child protection. Yeah, those are those are great distinctions, and I really appreciate that perspective. I'm going to shift gears a bit and back to what parents can do. You had in the um, in the adult children speak out uh, book where you'd done the qualitative analysis of the the now adult children looking back. You'd identified three distinct categories of alienation. One of them, I was um, it was good to see because I've walked along with families that have experienced this alienation prior to separation. And so it seems like there's an opportunity there. And with all of your coaching background, do you have some advice for parents that sort of find themselves in this alienation kind of uh, situation, but before the separation, um, ways that they can respond or even deal with the spouse that's doing the alienating behaviors? Um, how much uh, advice do you have uh, for those uh, people in those situations? Yeah, so that's a that's a part of my caseload too of the clients that I work with. Some of them aren't going to leave the house. They're not going to file for separation um, or divorce until the relationship is improved because they're worried that once once the marriage is over and there's two homes, they're not going to get any parenting time. And of course, if you're in the home with your kids, you're much more likely to have moments where you can connect with them. That's not always the case. I have some very extreme cases where the alienator, even though they're still married to the targeted parent, basically controls the child you know, 24-7. So I think that just because you know there's alienation doesn't mean you should immediately file for divorce um, because strategically it might make sense to stick around and try to get some time in with your kids and, and shore up or repair the relationship. At the same time, I would say that if you're going to stay in the home, 
in the marriage, um, you have to be very careful not to do something that would allow the other person to get a domestic violence restraining order against you. And this is somewhat more of a risk for men than women, but I have had, you know, moms who have had this done to them. So I generally remind my clients to, um, you know, no yelling, no cursing, um, don't throw objects near the person, even like smashing plates in the kitchen because you're so frustrated if the person is standing there, you know, a shard of the plate could, you know, hit them and then they can claim that you harmed them. Don't block the doorway, um, especially, you know, if you're like really, really angry and you're having an argument with the person, if you block the doorway, they can claim that you were sort of controlling them and coercing them and intimidating them. And, um, you know, as probably many people know, the restraining order system is designed to basically believe the person who's saying they're afraid or feeling endangered. And so you have to be very careful not to do something that could allow the person to credibly have a whiff of truth to it that then could get you arrested or thrown out of the house because then that creates an air of badness about you that's hard to get out from under. Um, don't grab the other person's cell phone. Like if they're making false allegations about you and you're really upset and you want to take the phone away from them, you can't. If you grab the phone from them, you are technically engaging in domestic violence because you're preventing them from seeking help. So the other thing I say is have a plan in place so that if the police are called, even let's say in the middle of the night, you have a suitcase packed at a friend's house, you know, where you have some clothes and some money. I'm not saying drain the bank account. That's a no-no. Um, but be prepared even mentally. Where would you go if this happened? And you had to suddenly vacate the premises. And just know that it could happen. And you want to keep calm. You'd like to do everything you can to prevent it. But you don't need to spiral into having it be this whole traumatic thing if it does happen. So if you're going to stay in the home, make sure that you don't give the other person any excuse for claiming that you engage in domestic violence. And if the kids are present, then that then that is technically child abuse in some states. So even if you're not abusing directly the kids, witnessing domestic violence is considered a form of abuse in certain states. And now you're an abuser and it's going to be a whole lot harder to make your case in court that you should have parenting time. Um, so I'm going to just shift for a moment to thinking about if you're going to stay to try to improve your relationship with your kids, your mantra, your North Star, your guiding light should be safe, loving, and available. That doesn't mean you agree with everything your kids say. It doesn't mean you give them everything they want, but it means that your demeanor towards them is always kind, calm, loving, and attentive. And I could talk for hours about how to do that because this is really what I spend most of my time thinking about now. A lot of my thoughts about this are in my newest book called Parenting Under Fire, How to Communicate with a Hurt, Angry, Rejecting, Distant Child. And I will say that a part of what happens once the alienation is set in motion is that the kids become hurt, angry, rejecting, distant, and trigger in the targeted parents behavior that then makes everything worse. So let's say the kids are talking in a haughty, arrogant tone of voice and the targeted parents getting hurt and angry and frustrated themselves. And they, you know, call the kid a brat or something. 
they engage in name calling or they raise their voice or they grab the cell phone out of the kid's hand, you know, because the kid is texting the other parent and they're frustrated and they just want to talk to their kid without the other parent interfering or whatever, then that becomes that bad act on the part of the targeted parent. That becomes the whole focus of why the kids are rejecting that parent, even though logically the rejection happened, then the bad act happened, but that's not the way child protection or a guardian ad litem or a therapist is going to see it. Most likely everything then will be focused on the problematic behavior of the targeted parent. So if you're going to stay, you have to have control over your emotions at all times and know when to walk away, when to say to your kid, hey, this is getting heated. I feel like this isn't productive. I'm just going to take a breather. I'll be back in a minute. We can pick this up again. You have to know how to read your own emotional state so you don't get dysregulated and do something that you're going to regret. And you really have to have your parenting skills you know, really and, you know, fine-tuned so that you know how to always be safe, loving, and available, even if your kids ask for something that's, you know, that you would deem ridiculous or talk to you in a way that you find very unpleasant. So I'm going to pause with that. Yeah, no, uh, great advice. And I, I am curious, um, in a lot of the situations, it seems like the targeting parents kind of personality is the narcissistic or we're, we're kind of battling the narcissism of the targeting parent. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origins of narcissism, just from the standpoint for a parent who is being targeted to sort of understand even some of the attachment history that leads into narcissism. Um, just because, you know, if we can kind of at least understand the story it, it does help kind of change around our expectations of what's going on and even how to uh, relate interpersonally to a person like that. Um, is that something you can speak to for a minute? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit because I think that in general, targeted parents, when they're thinking about the alienating parent and their behavior, and certainly talking about the alienating parent to other people, whether it's a custody evaluator or a therapist or the judge or whoever, guardian ad litem, whoever, I think that targeted parents should stay away from labels um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, unless they are a licensed mental health professional, they're not really qualified to diagnose. I have to tell you, Every client I have thinks the other parent has a personality disorder. And I doubt that it's true for every single case, but it's easy to sort of latch on to that because it, um, in a way, it gets you off the hook. It's like, oh, the whole problem is that other person. Um, but I think that we're, I generally just don't think the targeted parent is helped by thinking about the other person as damaged. And the truth is people don't gain or lose custody because they have a personality disorder. It's not a mental illness. It's a disorder and there is a difference. And people gain or lose custody based on their behavior. So the example that I usually give is, let's imagine you're divorced, you're the targeted parent, you have a court order that says every Wednesday at seven, you can call the other parent's landline to talk to the kids. And every Wednesday at seven, you call the landline and the other parent picks up the phone and says, you know, um, hello, and then hangs up on you. That's a bad act. They're interfering in your access to the kids and they're violating a court order. It doesn't matter if they're doing that because they're a sociopath or a narcissist or just a jerk. What matters to everybody else, you know, the, to the extent that anybody cares about that, they care about the behavior. Is that violating a court order? Is that disruptive to, you know, your relationship with the kids? 
the underlying psychic motivation of the other parent is really not relevant. And I think a lot of times targeted parents kind of fixate on the, you know, the psychological problems of the alienator. You know, maybe they were alienated from their own kids, you know, from their own parent when they were a child. Maybe, you know, um, something happened to them in their childhood that's leading them to do this. But I think we're kind of on dangerous territory, diagnosing other people or using their childhood experiences to sort of prove who they are today. And the truth is, you know, not everybody who was abused as a child grows up to be an abuser. Not everybody who was alienated as a child grows up to be, you know, an alienator themselves. So it's not proof of anything. The one thing that I will pick up on that you said that I sort of agree with is if you understand a little bit about the other person and what triggers them, what ticks them off, you can try to be sensitive to it. But you don't have to say, oh, somebody's a borderline to know that they're not going to like it if you're you know, whispering about them or saying bad things about them to their family or friends, right? That's, you know, there are certain things that nobody likes. So I think it's more about who is this person and what can I do to try to get along with them better rather than what diagnosis do I think they have and how can I use that against them? So, yeah, and pushback, absolutely um, taken uh, in kind. Um, and so just to kind of maybe um, approach that question a little bit differently is that from a, if you're still, you know, pre-separation and still in the same four walls with an individual who is doing the alienating behaviors, we've, we've talked about how you relate to the children. Um, how do you kind of uh, what advice do you have relating to that other parent um, in sort of day-to-day -day situations in terms of attitude, even your own behaviors, that kind of thing um, that might even prove to be helpful in the long run? I mean, basically what I'm kind of digging at is I'm sure you've seen some success cases. And so what were some common themes that actually brought about some success if if you have um, you know, if you have walked through uh, this with with folks, so that's kind of what I'm I'm wondering about. What what works in terms of when you have an alienating and an alienated parent? Um, does something work to bring them back together and find peace? So I would say most of my coaching is with people who are already separated and divorced, and most of it focuses on helping the targeted parent be a more effective parent, given that the attachment relationship is being corrupted by the other parent. I would say in terms of co-parenting, whether you're still together or not, not assuming that the other person is gonna do everything the way you want or the same way that you do it is very helpful. I think a lot of times when people first get divorced or separated, there's an assumption that things are gonna be similar in two homes. you know bedtime is going to be the same. Um, emphasis on schoolwork is going to be the same. Diet nutrition is going to be the same. Um, you know, just sort of the routine day-to-day -day rituals of life. Um, people sort of assume, well, we did, we did it one way when we were married. So of course, we're still going to put the kids to bed at 730 and we're still going to, you know, be vegan or whatever. Hmm. And I think that's sort of a harmful assumption. And I think the more you can accept, and this is very, very hard, but the more you can accept that the other person, other than abusing the children, can do whatever they want on their parenting time. I think that a lot of co-parent grief happens because people want that other person to do things the same way they're doing it. And I even know cases where the parents expect the kid, the other parent to punish the kids. Like Johnny was rude to me, so I'm punishing him, no cell phone. And I expect you, the other parent, to hold that up when Johnny goes to your house. And look, if that can, I first of all, I don't really 
believe in taking cell phones away from kids and punishment, but that's another story. But look, if you can agree and you want to do it that way, fine, but you can't make the other person want to co-parent with you in that way. And there is this concept called parallel parenting where other than, you know, safety issues, like everybody has to agree the kids are going to use seatbelts and helmets, et cetera. Um, each parent gets to do things their own way. And, you know, you might not like what the other parent's doing. You know, they might be giving the kids donuts for breakfast and you're, a, you know, health food oriented. You have to pretty much be quiet about it. You can't make them do it. You can't make them feel badly for doing it. You can bring it up once. That's sort of my rule. Like, hey, I heard the kids are having donuts for breakfast. You know, I'm kind of concerned, you know, could you maybe not do that that often? But then, and probably even that, I would say, just hold that in. Don't bother the other parent with that. So accepting that you have very little control over what the other parent does on their parenting time, that will bring you a great deal of peace and, and some sadness because it's hard to let go of the idea that you know what your kids are doing and that you're going to have control over what they're doing when they're with that other parent. But if you can accept that, if you can move to that, then you're going to have an easier time getting along with the other person. Yeah, that's that's. And you had made that comment about grieving the identity of your child as well when it comes to when the kids have been, you know, alienated for quite a while that you know, doing that, that grief process is super important. So I just wanted to give you the last uh, minute and uh, the floor, because I know we're at a hard stop, just final comments um, that you wanted to leave the audience with uh, today. Well, one thing I'm very impressed about with a lot of my clients is that they're able to put their ego aside and just say, hey, what can I do better? Help me get through this. And that would be like the number one you know, sort of advice I would give for anybody who's pretty much dealing with any problem is, but certainly a parenting issue is to acknowledge parenting is really hard, especially parenting in a conflicted marital or conflicted divorce situation. And there is help out there. And the more you can open your heart to your kids and open your heart to um, constructive feedback and support, I think you're going to be better off. With that, thank you so much for spending time with me. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation um, and I just wish you uh, the best in, in your uh, continuing journey. And um, I know you've helped a lot of people and uh, just um, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, that you're out there. I'm happy to uh, participate in the podcast. I will just like to tell people my website if they want to find me. It's amyjlbaker.com. Thanks again. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye. So there you have it. That is our third and final interview with an expert on parental alienation. I just can't thank Dr. Baker enough for her wealth of information and the insight that she shared with us. And I will um, pray us closed in just a moment. But before I do, wanted to give you a heads up on what to expect next. I will be putting together an episode where we review the spiritual dimensions of parental alienation. As the interview with Dr. Baker drew closer and I was heavily into many of the books that she has written, several themes emerged that I just want to make sure that I'm connecting back to the excellent science and practical wisdom that we've just reviewed in the past few podcasts, because I think there are some very significant insights um, for us in the Christian mysticism or a deep context uh, lens to consider. So uh, hopefully more to come very soon, and uh, I will go ahead and pray as closed. Dear Heavenly Father, I just wanna thank you for giving us gifts like Dr. Baker, and Dr. Blatke and, and uh, Ashish Joshi. They were very generous with their time 
and gave us tremendous insights. And I just hope that you continue to bless them and their work and magnify the message and magnify the impact that they are having in the lives of the children and families that they serve. And we just ask that you help us process this information and live it out in our lives to impact our children and the families around us, Lord. We know that you work in strange and mysterious ways, and we don't always understand why there is so much suffering, Lord. Uh, but we do give you our loyalty and uh, promise to walk with you uh, in this world. So please bless us with your wisdom and love and kindness and patience as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all for spending time with the podcast. And until next time, be blessed.